0: You're listening to the teaching of DOXA Church. DOXA is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Thank you so much for opening to Facebook. Great stuff. Uh, kids, you are free to go to DOXA Kids. Chris has his stand-up back there. We got Mr. Chris, Miss Karen, and uh, Chris is filling in for the Parises who got under the weather, unfortunately, so he stepped right in. Appreciate that, Chris. Everyone else, please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Malachi. We're going through this book. This is our current series, Sovereign Grace, through this prophetic message of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It was written 400 years before Jesus Christ came into this earth as our Savior, and so far... In this message of this book, we have heard a lot of questions, question after question after question. God has been speaking through his prophet Malachi with a heavy dose of questions as he has been addressing the questions that his people are thinking. So when you you hear question after question, what do you think that says about the health of the relationship? I tell you what, if you, have a, if you have a relationship where there's so many questions, that tells you something about it. And a healthy relationship has a lot of communication, but one of the telltale signs of an unhealthy relationship is actually a lot of questions. Think about it, if you're communicating well, you don't get all those questions. know The information is provided up front, and you discuss that, and you have a discussion around it. High trust equals fewer questions, Low trust equals a lot of questions, a lot more questions. Were you with anyone? You know, How long were you there? What did you do after that? If you're hearing that kind of, those kind of questions, you probably need to build up some trust with your spouse or with your significant other, right? So that's something to monitor in your own life. You can really get a barometer on your relationships based on the type of communication that you're having. Well, let's look at verse 17 of Malachi chapter 2. We're going to pick it up right where we left off from last week and we're going to see some more questions. We'll see what it says about the relationship. Verse 17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the justice of God. So that verse, you have wearied the Lord. We, we had a lot of questions in chapter 1. Chapter 2, it went even to more into like a cross-examination style of Malachi speaking to the people through these questions. Now in chapter 3, as we're about to embark on this new chapter, the questions have turned into accusations. And... These are rhetorical questions now, which they aren't really seeking an answer, you know, from that question. They're really just making a statement from it. Okay, that's, that's what we have here. And in verse 17, God the Father is weary. It doesn't mean he's physically exhausted. That's impossible. But in the original, it's the word that means to be agitated or to be annoyed. So, so God is very frustrated. Quetches. You have wearied the Lord with your words. And we've already seen this in the first two chapters, first half of this book. There has been, you know, just almost a declaration of war on dad. You know, how have you loved us, God? How have we despised your name? And all along, God has been firm. He's been affectionate this entire time. And now he's being lovingly clear about where they are at. So maybe you've been in one of these kind of arguments before. Where you're just like, I'm weary, I'm just ready for this conversation to end. I'm just telling you, I can't take much more of this. Um, but, but look at the next phrase. You know, that's basically what God is saying. You're, you're wearing me down with your words. The next phrase is, well, how have we wearied you? Well, you just answered that question, okay? <laughs> you're still talking. Um, I think it's pretty humorous in a sad way. You know, God's saying, I'm telling you, you're talking too much, yet here you are still talking, and you want to talk about how I'm talking too much. This shows you what kind of people God is dealing with. But I have to stop all of us right here, because a self-righteous person reads this text, they shake their head, they pat themselves on the back, they like, look at that person. Look at, look at that thankfully I'm not like that. But the realistic way to read this text is in humility, knowing that this message has been preserved for us, not just so we can know history, and not even just so we can know more about the character of God. That's definitely true, but this is here because this is the same type of person that we can all be, every single one of us. You can read this religiously and and, and just shake your head. Oh, how dare they? And, you know, look at how they engaged with God in the past. Thankfully, I'm not like that. Or you can read it realistically. This is how I can be. This isn't just what used to happen. This still happens. So let's be honest. Have any of you ever asked any of these questions? Why does God allow evil to happen? Why is God allowing these good things to happen to these terrible people? Or where is the God of justice? God, where are you? Well, if those are questions that you are asking, maybe you've asked them in the past, welcome to Malachi. I'm glad you joined us. Uh, You're you're picking it up halfway through. We're running full speed at this point. But one question leads to another and then to another, and then to another. And the questions eventually turn into accusations. And then you get frustrated, wounded people who are lashing out at God. So the message today is about how you can turn an unhealthy situation into a healthy relationship. We're talking about turning an unhealthy situation into a healthy relationship. And here's the first point. Number one Don't let your life get hung up on questions. Constantly questioning things doesn't just make those around you weary, it will actually make you weary. Now, life is a battle. Those of us who have lived long enough to realize that, we we know life can get hard. If you know Christ, you know why. It's it's a result of the fall. We live in a sin-cursed world. But there are two ways that you can get defeated in this battle of life that we all face. You can either take a knockout punch or you can just get straight up worn down over time. And some of us have taken the knockout punch. We have made horrible mistakes. We're knocked off our feet to the ground. And just as we sung about earlier, the only reason you're still standing today is because you were brought to your knees and God picked you up off the mat and he breathed new life into you. Praise God for that, right? Yeah. The other way, though, that we can still get defeated even after we know Christ isn't through the knockout punch. It's through the constant jabs of life. It's like the fighter who, who doesn't have the heavyweight strength, so his play is to wear you down. Jab, jab, jab. He's got the good cardio. His, his method is just outlast you. He's not going to come in with the haymaker, but he wants to just punch you over and over again. And that's what some of us are feeling in this room today. Seemingly endless barrage of jabs, health concerns, family drama, financial hardship, jab after jab after jab. And we can all fall into this place where you think, I'm struggling because of these bad people over here. I can't believe they did that to me. And God you're letting them get away with it? And and, and the more you think about that and you question that, you say, God, why are you treating me like this? You must not care. And then after that, if it's not corrected, that can turn into, well, if you allow these bad people to thrive and me, the good person, to suffer for what happened to me, then you must be bad. And people shake their fist at God. And now, in reality, you have successfully inverted the universe, right? That's an inversion of what is true. No longer is God on the throne judging us, we are on the throne judging God. Many of us have been there. Some of us are getting close to that emotionally right now. See what God could say right here at this point is when you sin, you want my mercy. When they sin, you want my judgment. He could have gone that approach. It's usually the way it works, right? But God does not go in that direction in Malachi 3, verse 1. Instead of parking here at the problem of evil, why does a loving, all-powerful, good God allow evil? God does not directly answer that question the way you might want him to. And he doesn't need to right now. Partly because that's not even the right question, but mostly because he has a better answer to a different question. So instead, he's going to give the answer to the question that they aren't asking. And we're going to get to that in a second. But I do want to pause here because reconciling the problem of evil on earth with the goodness of God is a legitimate legitimate thing that we all need to work through. Um, and I don't want to minimize the problem of suffering and evil in this world. I'm not telling you this is a bad question that you should never be asking. There are a lot of good answers to it. And if you want to study this, just look up, you know, the theodicy. And, and something called the theodicy. You can find great answers. They're in 2 Peter chapter 3, Psalm 73, Romans 8. God provides a lot there. He's not going to go through that specifically in this, in this verse, in this chapter. But let me give you what I think are the four different takes that people have on the problem of evil. All right, you see them right up here. Uh, you have atheism. These are, these are re- really your four options. Uh, people believe, well, there is no God. This is, stuff is happening to me. There must not be a God. It is what it is. And there's no hope in that, really. You also have deism. This is God created the world. He set it in motion, but now he's inactive. He's like the absentee landlord, And maybe you've heard of the book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? It was a book written in the late 90s. Uh, The author of that book believed that God is good, but not all-powerful. He would be falling under this category. You also have monism. God is both good and evil. This is what you get in Eastern religions, the yin and the yang. But when evil happens, what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to run to God, who is also evil, Your fourth option on the table is Christianity. God is good, and he's not done with evil. This is the only one with significant hope. And there aren't any other options. So when you think about it that way, Christianity isn't a bad option on the table, is it? That's on a practical, philosophical level. um, And this is not taking into the specifics all that we do see revealed in Scripture. But to get mad at God like this, and to shake your fist at him, and question his goodness and his justice, is, is just like a person sitting in a theater, watching a movie, halfway through the movie, you get mad, you don't like the plot, and you wrongly predict how it's going to end, and you just walk out of the theater cursing the movie director and the, and the filmmaker, right? Remember when we used to go to theaters and that was a thing? You can't, you can't do that. So, God's people have a lot of questions. They have accusations, and you may as well. In this text, God has one answer. It's his son, Jesus Christ. Malachi 3.1 is the beginning of this answer, so will you look at it with me? Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare, prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the people want to talk about suffering and those people, and politics and finances, and this and that, and God, why are you allowing this? God, where are you here? God says, I want to talk about my son. I want to talk about my son. And I love this because there is a lesson right here. Before we even get too deep into this, when someone is hurting and someone is consumed with themselves and all they can talk about is their problems, take a cue from God here. Sometimes the thing to do is say, hey, you know what, I love you, but I'm going to redirect the subject for a second, okay? Let's just, let's just change directions and let's talk about something else. We've been go- going over this for a while now in this book. I, how have you loved how have you loved me? Well, God says I chose you. Where is the God of justice? He's coming. He's coming to the cross. That's where he is. The cross is where the God of justice is. So do you see that all of these questions are simply answered in Jesus? The answer is always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And this isn't a trite thing. This is truth. 1 Corinthians 13:12 says something because something that we need to know here, because sometimes we're going to say, well, you know, my question just isn't being answered. And sometimes your question isn't going to be answered for a while. It may not even be answered this year. It may not be answered in this life. 1 Corinthians 13 says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall be fully known. Until we enter into the fullness of the kingdom of God, and we see Jesus face to face, until then we are not going to understand it all. That's where we're at right now. And this doesn't mean that there's not an answer. It just means that the answer has not been revealed to us yet. So God, right now, is redirecting the conversation towards Jesus, and that's what we're going to do right now. And you may say, well, David, I didn't see Jesus' name in Malachi 3.1. Well, trust me, it's there, and that's what I want to show you. So this starts out with the word behold, and that's like saying... Wake up, don't miss this, underline this. Behold, he is coming. So they wanted answers, right? And here's what God gives. He gives presence. He gives his presence. This is very important to remember. God won't answer all of your questions in this life. But his answer to your questions is his presence in your life. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. He will always be with us even until the end of the age. And one of the most repeated phrases throughout the Bible is fear not. You remember this one, right? It's all over the place. Fear not. But what almost always surrounds that, almost every single time when you hear the phrase fear not, there's another phrase that closely follows it. It's fear not for I am with you. The answer that you want to hear isn't always the answer you get, but the answer that you need is his presence. The presence of God. The only thing that's worse than suffering is suffering alone. And sometimes we think, hey, I, need, I just need a counselor here, when many times is what we need is a comforter. God is saying to his people, these angry, caustic people who are starting to lose it, he is saying, behold, I am coming to you. So the creator is entering creation. God's going to become a man. And there's something else here that's very important. Um, Every other religion, besides biblical Christianity, teaches that we go to God through our good works. By paying off our karmic debt, uh, it's always some variation of social justice or being a good person that allows you to ascend up to God. But the Bible teaches that Jesus descended down to us. He humbled himself. He came to us. Philippians 2, 5-9. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the goodness of God is that he is running after us. And here's the answer. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. But there's a lot more in this verse. Verse number one. So let's go through this for a little bit. Where is he coming? Well, it says he's coming to his temple, right? The magnificent house for God, the center for worship and teaching and adoration, the connecting point between heaven and earth. God's word was taught in the temple. The people of God would go to the temple to draw near and feel the presence of God. In Malachi's day, the temple here has just been rebuilt. So now he's he's really speaking their language. But the point of the temple was not just to get people ready for Jesus, um, it was, the point of the temple was that, actually. It was to get people ready for Jesus. It was the place where you would uh, repent of your sin. You would bring a sacrifice. Blood was shed as the priest intercedes for you. So forgiveness was granted and you could be right before God. This entire process foreshadowed Jesus Christ. The perfect sacrifice, the spotless lamb, who sacrificed his life for the remission of our sin. It all foreshadowed Jesus. Jesus. Now, when Jesus comes to the earth, 400 years later, Jesus goes to the temple and he teaches in the temple. So, so let's back to this verse. Who's coming? It's Jesus. Where is he coming? His temple. But how will we know it's him? How will we know it's the right Jesus Christ? How will we know he is truly the Lord? Because there's false Christs out there as well. Well, that, this verse right here tells us, Behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. This is a prophecy right here in Malachi 1 about John the Baptist. And this verse is the exact verse that Jesus Christ quoted when he was talking to his disciples about John the Baptist. Matthew 11, verse 10. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. If you aren't familiar with John the Baptist, um, you really need to be, okay? Jesus just said he is the greatest man who was ever born of woman. It's it's one of the most slipped-on lines of Jesus, I think. You know, what a statement. The the greatest man ever? You know, you may think, all right, well, we want to give Time Magazine, the, the man of the year, to the person who cures cancer one day. Well, no, you should probably give that cover to John the Baptist, because... Jesus said he was the greatest man ever born of woman. Why was he so great? Well, he was raised by spirit-filled parents. He loved and served Jesus and devoted his life to being Jesus' forerunner, the messenger of who Jesus was. He preached repentance of sin. The Messiah is coming. You need to get ready. He proclaimed the good news up to that point that the Lord is near. Repent and be baptized and get ready for him. And we're going to just park here for a little bit because I love this character in the Bible, John the Baptist. He was wild. This guy was based. He was bold, powerful, charismatic. He was the young guy who doesn't dress like everyone else. He wore camel's hair with a leather belt strapped around his waist, which means he was basically wearing the clothes from two centuries beforehand. All right? Talk about he doesn't care to fit in. He just, he's wearing two century old clothing. He's eating wild Honey, local honey and and locusts, all right? He's got this local organic diet. He was vegan before anybody was ever vegan. And he's just out there in the wilderness passionately crying out about the Messiah who was going to come. Get right with the Lord right now. Repent. The Messiah is drawing near. I mean, he... Talk about somebody who wasn't trying to be like the world to win the world. This guy was, was marching to the beat of his own drum, and he was zigging when everyone else was zagging. Um, And as he's preaching, John is out there in the wilderness baptizing people. Big things are happening. Mass revival. Jesus shows up, right? Do you remember the story in Matthew 3? At this point, Jesus was the no-name. John the Baptist had like thousands of people following him. And Jesus had just been doing his family business of carpentry. He hadn't done any miracles yet. Jesus shows up onto the scene, and John the Baptist points to Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who will take away the sins of the world. That's what John did. Jesus tells John, I want to be baptized by you, and and John's like, I can't do that. Jesus insists it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. So John consented. But the reason that John was the greatest man ever born of woman wasn't just that he marched to the beat of his own drum and had his own style and and was a bold, charismatic leader who everybody wanted to follow. It's that when he had a crowd and he had an audience, he transferred it over to Jesus Christ. He just gave it right over to Jesus. You know what he said? John said, I must decrease he must increase. That is amazing. Do you realize how rare that is? He literally took his platform and he handed off every single follower to the God-man, Jesus Christ. He was willing to make it all about Jesus. And John never backed down. He spoke out against the corruption of his day and he, he lost his head for it, literally. But once he baptized Jesus, his frenzy and his buzz was over. He concluded his ministry by making everything about Jesus. And some of Jesus' disciples were disciples of John before they followed Jesus. They took their cue from John. All right, I need to follow Jesus now. That's amazing. It's like the sprinter who ran their leg in, in the race. And then they hand off the baton to the ringer, right? And then they just go over the sideline and start cheering him on. Yeah, you got this. That's what John did. The greatest man born of woman because he made Jesus' name great. And because he made Jesus' name great, Jesus made his name great. So there's there's a lesson here. This is like a little side point, but there is a lesson here. Um, Those of us who seek to make our name great rarely ever end up with a great name. Think about how many big names, popular, famous people, that before it was all said and done, we found out something about them that was... Pretty dark and not great. And their name was tarnished. Falls from, fall from grace. The best names in history are the names who make Jesus' name great. So back to Malachi. Who is coming? The Lord. Where is he coming? The temple. How will we know it's him? John the Baptist. Is there any more in here? Yeah, there's one more nugget in this verse, and I don't want you to miss it. It's when is he coming? When is he coming? Uh, Well, we all know right now that this was written 400 years before Jesus. We already know when he came. But there's a massive clue here that has implications to this day. This prophecy says that Jesus comes to his temple. So follow me on this. There are a lot of Jews to this day who are still waiting for the Messiah to come, right? They're waiting for the Messiah. So let's say, hypothetically, you're talking to a Jewish person who's waiting on the Messiah... They don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They're still waiting. And in their world, can the Messiah come right now based on Malachi 3.1? Can the Messiah even come? No, he can't. He has to go to the temple. There is no temple right now, right? There's no temple. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. It's just not there. It's a big hole. There's there's a mosque right next to it. There's there's a couple ruins of a wall there. God's Spirit now dwells in believers. We read scripture about this earlier. The church consists of men, women, and children who are living temples. The Holy Spirit is indwelling inside of you. His presence is not restrained by the Holy of Holies now. Now it's in us. The church is the living body of Christ. But Malachi 3 is telling Jews that when their Messiah comes, it's when the temple is standing. So if you ask a Jewish friend, what are you waiting for? Well, we're waiting for the Messiah to come and set up the kingdom and usher in peace. Show them this verse right here. As graciously as you can tell them, you missed it. Jesus Christ already came. In your own scenario, your Messiah cannot return right now. This verse says that when he comes, he comes to his temple. And as the temple is an archaeological dig right now, um, there are men and women who still go to it and pray. They go to what is called the wailing wall. The men go to one side and the women go to the other side. And they, they won't even turn their backs on the wall because they believe, they, they will back up facing the wall because they believe that God's presence is in that wall. Paul told the Athenians that God does not live in a temple built by human hands, but that he is near to every one of us, that he is living inside of us. So we don't believe that we get to God by going to a place. We don't believe that. God comes to you through the person of Jesus Christ. So if you remember, we're still on point one now, and this has been a very long point. But we're still on point one. Don't get hung up on questions. The answer is not the answer that you may have wanted, but it is the answer that you need. The answer is his presence. Even if you're not in a good place, you are in good hands. You have a relationship with him, and you can always have hope. And I'm ready to reveal point two, uh, but we had a lot to get through, right? We had John the Baptist, we had Jesus Christ, the temple, the new covenant, all before 70 A.D., And that is prophecy right there. There's a lot of people who have questions about the Bible. And they have doubts about the Bible. Well, the burden of proof is on you. What do you do with prophecies like this right here? This is why I took so much time with this. There are a lot of questions that we have about the Bible. The Bible answers them all. It's all contained in the book. And there's prophecies like this in Malachi 3. I mean, you can't make stuff up like this, right? Right? You need to investigate it, follow the leads, and watch it lead to the truth of Jesus Christ. Don't get hung up on questions. If you are, you're probably not asking the right question. The answer is Jesus. It's fear not, for I am with you. And even if you don't understand it, you have his presence. So, how can you turn An unhealthy situation into a healthy relationship? Is that premise starting to make more sense now? Don't get hung up on the questions. That's number one. Let's see what else God has done here with the suffering and the angst and the accusations. You know, in Malachi 1, we just saw the first coming of Jesus, and now in the next verse, he's about to go one step further with the second coming of Jesus, and this is where we're going to get our second point. Point number two is, Don't live your life trying to constantly avoid heat. I'm going to read verses two through four for you here. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings into righteousness to the Lord then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. So uh, you need to follow me here for a minute on this. This is deep stuff that we're in. We're in a prophetic book. And thankfully, we have the rest of Scripture to help us, right? We have the full canon of Scripture to interpret this. But in Malachi's day, there was an immediate message And now, as we look back on this ancient prophecy, we can glean even more out of it. So, these verses, I'll tell you right now up front, cannot be about Jesus' first coming. Because in Jesus' first coming, he did not come to refine, he came to redeem. You you see the difference there? In his first coming, he came as a baby. In his second coming, he's coming as a king. In his first coming, he came as a lamb. In his second coming, he's coming as a lion. His first coming, he came for the lost. His second coming, he's now coming for his enemies. In his first coming, he came for salvation. In his second coming, he's coming for judgment to all who have rejected him. There's going to be a lot more about that in verse 5. But in Jesus' first coming, he came as a sacrifice for all of mankind to emancipate sinners and establish his kingdom. His second coming, he's going to be a judge and a purifier. These verses are a prophecy about His second coming, but they still have a practical message for us right now, and that is, don't try to avoid the heat. That's not going to help you. So to break this down one step further, just so we're clear with where we're going with this, in verses 2 through 4, we see Jesus' second coming and how it relates to His people, and then in verse 5, we see Jesus' second coming and how it relates to His enemies. So, Let's go over something about the character of God first. Something that doesn't get talked about enough. It's something that will help you turn your unhealthy situation into a healthy relationship. As we venture into this, you have to decide whether you're one of his people or whether you're one of his enemies. You're one or the other. There's really no middle ground there. John 3, 17-18 says... For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So let's focus on verses two through four. There's two truths revealed about Jesus through two different images, right? First, Jesus is a cleaner says he's like fuller soap. We'll talk about that. Secondly, Jesus is a refiner. He works with us like a, like he's purifying precious metals. So Jesus cleanses his own. Hopefully we all took showers this morning, maybe last night. But what, what's true about cleaning? You, you, you do it once and you have to do it again, right? This is just, it's just not a one-time thing and you get it over with. It, it never lasts. And for all of the moms and dads in the room, we know we know you have to wash your dishes over and over again. The dishes never end either. We wash our hands, we use sanitizer. It's not a one-time thing. Well, Jesus works with us like this. He cleans us up again and again. When we sin, legally, uh, we are guilty. And practically, we feel dirty. But Jesus not only gets our legal standing before God corrected, by dying for our sin and paying the price and imputing his righteousness into us, he forgives us and he takes away our guilt and he makes all things new. That's what our Savior does for us. How many of you, though, you've been forgiven and yet you still feel dirty sometimes? You know, you have it right with God. But maybe it's a sin from your past. Maybe, maybe you feel like it's still part of your identity. Maybe it's something that's still haunting you. Maybe it was something that was committed towards you. Well, look what this says about Jesus. The fact that he's, he is a refiner, he's a purifier. It says that you're not just forgiven. You are forgiven and cleansed. You're not forgiven and dirty. When you're forgiven, you are clean. And this is such good news. We can go live a new life, a new identity, because he who knew no sin became sin for us. On the cross, our faith, when we put it on Jesus Christ that salvation, his righteousness went into us. And he's still cleaning us up. He's still working on us. But as God's people, we get to wear white for eternity. There's a tradition at weddings, uh, which is a picture of the church as a bride of Christ, her relationship with Jesus. There's a tradition that says, you know, if if the bride is pure, if she's never been intimate before, she wears white. And, and if and if she's not a hundred percent pure, there's been mistakes in the past. Maybe she's going to wear off white or cream. I've had I've had ladies ask me this before, like, what should I do for my wedding? Should I wear white or not? They're, they're afraid to wear white because of something that they did in their past. Well, what does the scripture teaching here? Wearing white is a picture of your purity in Christ. It's a picture of our cleansing. So if you have been forgiven, it doesn't matter what you've done in the past, you're not dirty anymore. You're clean. God sees you through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So if you know Jesus, wear white. Wear white. Because you're forgiven and you're no longer dirty. You're forgiven and clean. A fuller was the individual who would take the raw, filthy wool from a sheep and purify it using a variety of techniques, including extremely harsh soap. It would would ultimately help make that sheep clean. It was a very undesirable job to use fuller soap. You're just scrubbing a sheep down. Wool's getting everywhere. It was nasty, right? (laughs) Jesus is our fuller. He's our fuller cleaner. He's also here a refiner. And in this day, a metal worker would separate the impurities in in precious metals, gold and silver, through a refiner's fire. They would have all known about this. They would get the flame really hot. They would melt the metal down. And as the metal reacted to the heat, the precious metal uh, would fall to the bottom and the impurities would all rise to the top. So what the refiner would do, As he would heat that that metal up, he would skim off the impurities, and he would do this over and over again, continually heating it up, and then skim off all the impurities. And after time, that metal, which would have been like foggy and dingy, he knows he's getting all the impurities out. He knows it's getting more and more pure, because after a while, he can look at that piece of precious metal and see his reflection in it. Isn't that good stuff? Think about that. That's the image that Jesus is giving here. He cleanses us and he refines us. This is exactly what Jesus does with all of us who are his own. And and he puts us over the heat. It's a good thing because it's working out the impurities. It's working out all the junk in our lives. It's making us more like Jesus Christ so we can start shining and reflecting his glory. So the point is here, Even though we're talking about the second coming of Christ, there's still a point here, right? Don't fight the heat. Don't think the heat is your enemy and try to avoid it at all costs. I know we don't like being over the flame. It hurts. And and when this stuff does surface, it's usually ugly and shameful. And you're like, ooh, ah, that's who I am? Yeah, get that away. I I don't want that to come out. I don't want people to see that and keep it repressed. One of the primary ways that Jesus gets it out is through the jabs, it's through the heat, it's through the trials, it's through all these things we have questions about that we don't even have answers to. We want to be pure and precious, but a lot of times we don't like facing the heat. And there are even people out there that want to tell you that you're precious without bringing any of the heat. That's not the way the Bible draws it up. Those people are called false teachers. There's no way to be purified without the heat. So sometimes it's something that you caused. Sometimes it's someone who sinned against you. Oftentimes it's just, maybe it's Satan attacking. But Jesus uses everything to pull you in closer to his presence. And you can either respond or you can walk away. You can draw near to him or you can do the opposite. The question you have to ask yourself is are you more concerned with where the heat is coming from or what God is doing with it? We can get so hung up on who caused the pain and and what someone else did to you when you're under attack. And that's all we're thinking about. If that's all you're thinking about, fear isn't far behind. Not the fear of God and resting in his presence. It's the crippling kind of fear. The relational heat, the financial heat. Our initial reaction is usually repress it, hide away, run away, but it's a mistake. He doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It means that God is doing something. That is good news. And it may not be the answer that you want to hear, but again, it's the answer you need. Just because it hurts doesn't mean he's not good. He loves you. So again, the answer is his presence. He wants to look down and see his reflection. But to get there, it's going to take some cleansing and some purifying, and that's what's going on here in Malachi. So can we stop asking why, why, why and start asking how? God, how are you going to use this? Usually we'll ask that question like, "All right, God, I know you're you're allowing this for a reason. You're going to have to teach me something and then we just sit there." All right, yep, God will teach me something. Just waiting for that, God. Just teach me something. Well, he's making it really clear right here. What in my character do I need to purify? Ask that specifically. Go the extra step. How can I change to become more like Jesus through this? In your character, how can it be more like God's character? Now, there's one more way in this text that we can turn an unhealthy situation into a healthy relationship. And we're going to pull one more application. This time, it's from how Jesus Christ judges the wicked. So point three, live in the presence of God with fear. That's the third point in verse five. Read that verse with me. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift, sw- a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So first of all, anyone in this room who is not a believer in Jesus, you need to hear this in a loving way. You are in imminent danger, okay? Verse 5 is directed towards you. Uh, we don't like to talk about this often, but it's right here in the text and we have to talk about it. It's the judgment of God. Now the takeaway truth for all of us who are believers is pretty straightforward. It's fear the Lord of hosts. Don't do, don't you dare do any of these things that we just see here. Cast off the sojourner, oppress people with what you're doing for their wages. like all of those things, being a sorcerer, all, not being honest. Obviously, that's what the world does. Who doesn't know God? Those are the six different people listed here, but they all go back to not fearing God. And some of us in this room fall into one of these classifications. It's a heavy thing. Do you fear the Lord? Do you honor Him? Respect His authority? Some people are not listening to God. They are arguing with God. You're not obeying. You're fighting. You're not reverencing. You are rebelling because you are going your way and you're so focused on what you want and the answer that you're not hearing. God has the answer for this. You have to turn to Christ. You have to repent of your way. And you have to put your faith in Jesus. If if you don't know Jesus and you haven't repented of your sin, you're not dealing with the refiner's fire. That that sounds really nice and sweet now, right? From verses 2 through 4. The refiner's fire sounds awesome. Give me some of that heat. It's going to make me more pure, make me more like Jesus. Great. Well, if if you're not in that category, you don't know Jesus, you're going to face another fire. It's the fire of judgment that brings misery forever. We're all going to sit over a flame. We can do it now in the love of God and become more like Jesus, or you can do it under the wrath of Jesus. Worship team, you can come up right here. Jesus came the first time to save us from eternal fire. This is a hard truth, but you have to hear it. The second time he's coming to light the eternal flame. I don't want you to die and go to hell. God does not want you to perish. So the people who asked this question, where is the justice of God? Where is this God of justice? This is the answer they got. It wasn't the answer they wanted, but it's the answer that they needed to hear. Where is the justice of God? Well, it's in two places. It's at the cross of Jesus Christ, and it's at the great white throne judgment. Those are the two places. The wrath of a just God was satisfied on the cross when Jesus died for our sin. But if you reject that, you will be met with the justice of God at the great white throne judgment. We don't talk about this very much, but it's right here. So we're talking about it. Justice will come. His name is Jesus. Receive him and he will take away your sin. So your justice comes through the cross. Or wait until it's too late and face the judgment of God for your sin at the great White right throne judgment. Some of you need to respond to God today and start a relationship. You need to repent of your way, you need to ask for forgiveness, and you need to receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Put your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, receive Him, and then start receiving the refiner's fire. For all of us who've received Jesus Christ, the most painful things that you're going through, they're not going to last. If they're happening to you, the Lord is going to use them to draw you in closer to Him, to build your relationship with Him. And that's why every single unhealthy situation that you find yourself has the potential to turn into a healthier relationship with God. Would you stand up with me? We're going to sing two songs as we close the message out today. In response, let's worship our Savior.